Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today's episode is a recording of a panel I moderated at the Reuters Commodity Trading 2021 event. The panel debate, the reality of the commodity trading supercycle. Are all commodities equal within it? What are the causes? And what might be its duration? As always, you can support the podcast by leaving a positive review on the platform you listen on. And I hope you enjoy the episode. I certainly enjoyed the discussion. Welcome back to Commodities Trading 2021. My name is Paul Chapman. I'm co-head of HC Group, a search and talent advisory firm, and also the host of the HC Insider podcast. Today, we're talking about the commodity supercycle. Our guests need, need little in the way of introduction, but we have Jeff Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs, Saad Rahim, Chief Economist at Trafigura, Derek Seyman, Global Head of Commodities and Options Products at the CME Group, and Alex Booth, Head of Research at Kepler. So I guess the, the, the first question to lead off with is, are we actually in a commodities supercycle? And, and if so, why? Saad, maybe you'd, uh, you'd kick that off, off for us. Sure. The way we talk about it is that there are probably about as many different definitions of super cycle as there are barrels of oil traded a day. As in, you know, are we talking about the increase, in which case, you know, we're already seeing two, 300% increases in some of the key commodities that we trade? Are we talking about level? Again, we're at all time highs in many of the commodities that we have seen or just come back a little bit off of those in recent times. Is it duration? So there, there's any number of different definitions around quote, super cycle. But do we think that we're in a situation where, given the level of demand that we see coming from many of the key commodities um, in the commodity trading world, are we seeing enough supply to meet that demand that's coming through, almost regardless of kind of what level of demand projection you're looking at? And I think that is the case. I think we're looking at sort of the the fruits of a many years of underinvestment across kind of the, the supply chain for these key commodities, whether it is copper, whether it is oil, whether it is even looking a little bit farther out, aluminium, you know, and I think within this sort of uptrend that we see, you know, you will get times where, you know, you, you, you'll have a little bit of a down leg on prices, uh, maybe even on demand. But overall, that structural trend that I think we see here, you know, it's really being driven by factors that are going to be hard to change in the short term. And Alex, I mean, where does Kepler stand on this? I mean, there are significant short-term disruptions. We've had a global plan pandemic. There's lots of other things going on beyond just a, an underinvestment over the past decade. Yeah, and that's thing. It's I think you can look at it in terms of whether it's the kind of the long cycle impacts or the short cycle impacts. Certainly, from our point of view, we agree completely. The the longer term impacts of the kind of the lack of investment and the the energy transition and the demand on across some multiple commodities is going to be very significant but where we're having these kind of additional short-term impacts that's really kind of boosting markets in particular i'd say that's around the oil side where we have these fundamentally restricted supply side of the equation as opposed to just the demand growth that we've seen coming out of covid we see the OPEC kind of announcements at the end, the, the outcome of the OPEC meeting from last week. They're holding with their standard the policy that they've already stated. 
increasing that steady supply, 400 KBD. The issue is there that even if they wanted to increase supply significantly, that couldn't really be done across the board. Yes, the big players, the Saudis, you know, kind of uh, Russia, UAE, they could bring significant volumes back if they wanted to. But as it is, they're underperforming relative to their own stated goals. There's a couple of hundred KBD kind of below what we would expect to come out into the market just in October. There was a big increase in October versus September, to be fair, but there's not much that can be done there. So we, we've really got to take into account this kind of the short term versus the long term. And I think there are some commodities where there are more short term impacts that are kind of boosting prices specifically at the moment. But there are others where it's really these long term plays that are coming in or the, say the, tr- the real shift in demand that is coming in with the energy transition as well. Jeff, you formulated your REV analysis behind, you know, the predicted commodity supercycle. Can you sort of layer in for us where wealth redistribution policy comes into triggering a supercycle or or fueling it, and also um, some of the trade policies that are out there that are also having an effect in the wake of COVID and sort of the fragility of the just-in-time supply chain? I like to point out. There is no commodity supercycle or period of inflation that's not associated with populist policies or redistribution. You just can't find one. They don't exist. And I want to go into the core of why that's a, a true statement is when we think about physical goods in commodities, they're what we call volumetric markets. They're driven by volume in the sense that it's the, you know, we look at if you're bullish oil, it's the volume of demand versus the volume of supply. Financial markets are we call dollar markets is how many dollars you pump into them. And when we think about what do the world's rich control, they control dollars through wealth and income. And when we look at, can they create financial inflation? Yes. Can they create GDP growth? Yes. But can they create physical good inflation or commodity inflation? The answer is numerically impossible. No, they cannot. There's just simply not enough of them. The volume is controlled by the low income groups. And so when you stimulate low income groups, you create the type of demand growth that's behind commodity super cycles and inflationary pressures, simply by the sheer numbers and the volume there. And so when we think about the 70s, what was it? It was redistribution, as you referred to. It was the war on poverty. When we think about the 2000s, when China was admitted to the WTO and unleashed this powerful outsourcing arbitrage that created this gigantic redistribution policies from rich Americans and Europeans, to low-income rural Chinese, 400 million of them to be precise. And that created that commodity super cycle. And what COVID did is it put an emphasis on policy towards lower-income groups. It's creating that volumetric growth. Look at you know record gasoline volumes that this past summer. When we look at the, the demand across all physical goods globally, it's at, at unprecedented levels right now. There's an important point about commodities. Commodities and physical markets are driven by the level of demand not the growth rate of demand. And so what we're doing is we're creating an environment that is stimulating that level of demand at very, very high levels. And we think about the relationship between energy transition and redistribution. There's a long history of using these types of tools for redistribution. A point I made earlier was FDR used Green CapEx to solve income inequality. So these policies are very much tied, but I think the big defining difference 
is that policy globally now after COVID is focused on these redistribution measures. And one of the most important issues of our time is income inequality, but this is not going to resolve itself overnight. So these redistribution policies, I think, are really at the center of that structural rise in demand. You also talk about the versatility in supply chains. Are we seeing countries, organizations trying to find alternative sources of metals for the energy transition? I mean, Derek, what's your view there? Are you seeing that? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of raises the question as to are all commodities equal in these commodity super cycles? And the answer is absolutely not. Typically, when you see concerns as you headed into inflationary times for all the points that panelists have already talked about, you typically see gold come along for that right, a terrific, typical inflation. As gold has really sat on the sideline for the last 18 months. As we've, we've seen European natural gas, what, quintuple in price, almost go up sixfold in the span of the last six months. We've got Henry Hub in the U.S. that's more than tripled since it's low from uh, March of 2020. You've got these, these varying impacts of the negative impacts on the supply side from COVID. We're already pulled back on supply because we were oversupplied at the time. Now we're in this recovery mode where we've got everyone who's now ping-ponging back to the other side of over demand, and now we're catching up for the lack of supplies, and now we've cut back too far in you know, shale, for example. So the, the issues that we're facing is different commodities are reacting to slightly different factors. Some of these are absolutely structural and long-term in nature. I agree with the points Asad was making before. Some of these are, are policy-driven, no question about that. We're not going to see oil production, gas production come back online in the policy environment here. I mean, listen, Biden is asking OPEC to pump more oil when the U.S. has more than enough opportunity to, to increase unleashing the low-cost uh, oil and gas out of the U.S. So you've got policy impacting on top of everything else, just as Jeff was talking about here. What's interesting is, and what we see as a, is that you know, the world's largest commodities exchanges, we're seeing the, the impact of markets play out exactly as Jeff was talking about. Follow the prices, follow the volatility, you're following exactly who's participating in what degree. We are seeing the biggest participants in our markets being commercial customers, retail of all things, and buy side. Why? Because in a world that's awash in zero interest rate policy and free dollars, people are looking for returns someplace. You got financial players looking for returns. They find that in spades over the course of this past 12 to 18 months. And you're going to see that continue as price rises continue across a core set of industrial commodities. We're also seeing record levels of European and Asian participation in our markets. Vast amounts. We're talking 30, 40% increases in our ag business in Asia, for example. Why? Because beans and corn are staples, and that has been a Chinese demand story. We've seen those prices now recoil back for corn and beans, but now we're seeing Chinese demand return for participation into oil markets and gas markets. So we're seeing both, you know, we talked a lot about ags and energy. One of the other stories we talked about, now, Paul, this is your intro here is metals. Now, metals is made up of three classes. You got battery metals, you got industrial metals, and you've got precious metals. Precious is really largely sat on the sideline. Industrial metals are through the roof, right? Copper, aluminum, back to policy, to, to similar to what Jeff was talking about. If you're talking about reflating your economy by doing inflationary policies like investments in infrastructure, that's going to go right at steel, concrete, aluminum, copper, all the things that feed into that. You layer on top of that, the energy transition story into clean fuels and EVs and batteries, you're seeing cobalt and lithium and copper, which is in, in part of that entire process of transition. So some of these are short-term, some of these are long-term structural, some of these are accelerated by the policies the governments are putting into place. So I would say there's an asymmetric impact across the broad commodities capital C and it's playing out differently across the individual products, even sub-products 
within markets like metals, for example. It's absolutely fascinating where we're seeing record levels of participation in our markets, record levels of open interest holdings being held by both financial players looking for a return in this market, but also the commercial producers, and in some cases are thrilled to death. And when you know soybeans went to $16, believe me, every farmer who's out there hedging their crop as far out as they could go. And we're also seeing an explosion of options participation also at record levels across our commodities portfolio because customers recognize that we're in a highly volatile world. So they are terrifically flexible tools for managing what is an increasing uncertain future. So I think it tracks with uh, what you've heard on the panel here, and it uh, is absolutely fascinating time to be in the crosshairs of where we're seeing customers, products, and global demand all intersect in these markets right now. Yes, and Trafigura spans metals and energy. Can you help us understand whether that's, again, staying on this theme of are all commodities equal in this super cycle, but also can you loop in for us China? Because obviously the fundamental cause of the previous super cycle was China and other developing nations you know, booming in demand. China's not quite the growth story it was with some you know, infrastructure. Can you talk to that side a bit? And Alex, maybe you can follow up. Sure. I think, as you say, what we've seen actually really from, from the start of when COVID hit, right, is that China was the first country really affected. And given its size in metals markets, you know, that really had an outsized impact, obviously, on metals initially. Before then, you know, China started to recover, really, and then the rest of the world took a hit, and in particular, movement around the rest of the world took a hit. So oil really came down, and it's taken a lot longer to recover, and it really only started recovering after the announcement of the vaccines a year ago today, right? So really, it's, it's been a, a longer struggle to kind of for oil to come back, but it is up 100% and more, actually, from where we were even October of last year, let alone sort of the depths that we plumbed earlier on. But, you know, we're not back up to all-time highs, unlike what we've seen on copper, the sort of multi-year highs that we've seen on aluminium and other things. And it's because we're just getting back to where we were on demand, whereas for some of the metals, we are starting to see really strong demand outside of China for the first time in a very, very long time, right? So copper demand in over the previous decade outside of China actually fell by a million tons. And now we're coming into a world where we are starting to see real growth in demand coming out of Europe, coming out of the U.S., whether it's infrastructure, stimulus spending, whatever it is. And that is really a new phenomenon that we haven't seen in, you know, in almost probably 20 years and to the degree that we have seen. And one of the points we raise is that you know, we are seeing commodity prices where they are today. We're seeing commodity demand globally where it is today without China really performing. And in particular, really on the property side in China has not really performed this year, as might have been expected for a variety of reasons. So for us looking forward, we're saying, okay, if and when Chinese property starts to pick up, because it will at some point, given it, its importance in, in the economy, then that will be additive to the demand that we're seeing now going forward. And to go back to a point that you know people have been making really around, again, this energy transition, we are starting to see this real pull for these metals. You know, and you know, we keep saying the key to the energy transition is made of copper. You, know, you can't have an energy transition really without copper. But going back to oil, I think as well, what we're saying is, look, you know, we've been so focused on when is peak demand that we sort of had peak supply almost in a sense hit us in the face. And I wouldn't say peak supply as much as I would say peak deliverability across a lot of these commodities, right? There is more than enough resource in the ground across just about all of these commodities with some exceptions. But really, it's a question of can you deliver those units when you need them, given the cycle time to bring on a lot of this supply? And I think that to me is really the key. And how do you incentivize you know, those units to come out today? And this goes to some of the short-term dynamics that we were talking about earlier as well. And I want to come back to policy and loop that in with duration. But Alex, can you just, I guess, further dig into that sort of the mix that Saul was talking about? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the, to kind of start on the copper side, one of the reasons why we like copper so much going forwards, because it's not only, a, as we were saying, it's not only a global demand story, but it's also a very concentrated supply story. So across the kind of many other commodities, there is the ability to increase your supply. Okay, yes, there has been reduced or kind of curtailed investment over time, but that's probably far more of a situation within the copper markets and the the ability to bring copper to market when I think we're all in agreement, demand is going to absolutely fly. On the Chinese side of things, though, where what we're seeing in terms of the in the prompt market, and again, touching on the property, we've had some kind of very disappointing months over the course of the last quarter in terms of iron ore imports, met coal imports, and you look at the, there was a rebound in iron ore imports uh, through October, a very strong rebound, but you look at the inventory data and it's just gone into inventories. The steel production numbers for China that are coming out are very weak. Yes, we've still, we've drawn steel uh, inventories, but that's because the, the production has really, really declined. So it's this real question of kind of, can you have can you have the super cycle without China? I think in many commodities, yes. Iron ore is going to struggle. Yes, prices have come off from the astronomical high levels, but they are still very elevated. There's no, there's no doubt about that. One of the big concerns here, obviously, in touching on this on the policy side again, is this Chinese-Australian relationship. And that is just having such a huge impact on, on even just the, the ability to kind of supply iron ore the amount of iron ore and coal that the country needs when it's running at full tilt. And that's just not really there at the moment either. Jeff, maybe you can come in there and, and sort of talk about international relations and, and how that could be exacerbating both some of the supply chain issues, but also elevating prices. You know, I, I'd like to point out when we have this Cold War going on between US and China, I call it deglobalization. Because, you know, we, you know, before you had this situation where, you know, everything was made in China. So all the commodity demand flowed through China. We're moving to an environment where everything's made at home. And we look at this trucking and shipping problem that's in the U.S. This is a direct result of this deglobalization process that's going on. And as a result, you're starting to see commodity demand being more, more profuse. You know, I like to point out the commodity super cycle of the 2000s with China-centric, this thing's going to be much more global in nature because you, you have trade moving back home and it's creating different types of bottlenecks, increased demand locally just to even build these processes, let alone try to make them more persistent. Um, so that's one dynamic. The other one that I see very much at, at play is if you want to be a superpower and you want to, to maintain your position and you know the world's going to deglobalize or decarbonize, you got to get there first and you got to control the technology. That's part of the reason why, you know, the Chinese have been really aggressive about this because if they go in, you know, into a trade war with carbon border taxes, they want to reduce their, their carbon footprint. So they're in a much better bargaining position, similarly with the U.S. So what's motivating these dynamics, whether, you know, decarbonization, deglobalization, you know, these trade dynamics and these international relationships, I think very much at front and center and are leading to a much higher demand environment. And again, you know, talking about the duration of all these things, whether if it's redistribution, climate change, um, you know, Cold War between U.S. and China, these things are deglobalization is probably a better term for it. These things are not going to go away anytime in the near future. These things are going to be pressing longest lived issues we've ever seen in our lifetimes. These things could go on for not only years, but potentially decades. 
Jeff, I'd like to jump in and maybe connect something that Saad had mentioned earlier and what Jeff was just talking about. Natural gas is, is a, in my mind, a, a perfect storm of those activities, right? You've got the U.S. and Henry have volume. I mean, prices almost tripling. You've got European prices up almost six, sevenfold right now. And the issue there is kind of come back to the, the point that Saad just made. There are challenges in the physical supply chains. There's no shortage of Henry Hub sourced U.S. gas right now. The problem is the facilities to liquefy that, freeze it, ship it over to Europe and Asia it is we, we've got, what, two, possibly three functioning LNG facilities in the Gulf. These are 10-year projects. There are three to four slated to come online over the next five years. This will not solve any of the short-term pain of why you're seeing you know, retail households in the UK paying the kind of gas price that they're paying and why you're seeing retail gas distributors going out of business. Because why? They had floating versus fixed on their books and they actually ended up in a very bad position where you got European and Asia fighting over those cargoes. There's simply not enough facility infrastructure and liquefaction to supply global demand. And this is it's a fascinating point because it comes up against what Jeff was just talking about. You've got now these dynamics of globalization versus deglobalization, right? You're trying to retrench back in the national interest. But if you're on the if if you're in a part of the world that doesn't have natural supplies of say natural gas, then you are sitting there as a demand-led economy saying, I gotta get it from Qatar, I gotta get it from Russia, I gotta get it from the US. Either way, you're dependent on the infrastructure that will get that to you. And that is not going to open up and the timeline that is going to relieve the pain. So I think it leads into the question, what is the duration of this? Again, that'll vary by asset class, but I would say natural gas is the perfect storm of reflecting both high levels of inventory when we didn't need it, now reduced levels of inventory and an inability to use a broad enough infrastructure to actually get that gas where it needs to be to manage prices lower. So I think we're in for a you know medium-term high-price environment and we're seeing that play through. That's where we're seeing open interest, which is the number of contracts the customers are carrying being held. We're at record levels over 6 million contracts in the Henry Hub. Why? People aren't in this for the quick buck of the next you know, 10 cent move in natural gas. They need to protect themselves medium and long term. We've got core open interest holdings out across the curve and in record levels. So it's a fascinating time where we've got globalization fighting deglobalization, fighting infrastructure that has yet to be completed that would otherwise kind of close that arb, as it were. But right now, that arb is going to be open for a long time. And that means pain at the pumps for a lot of people. And just before we move on to duration and policy, because clearly at some point, policies might go the other way. The pain gets so intense, especially on the energy side. There's obviously a lot of hype in the media about a super cycle and you know, market animal spirits and all that. You mentioned, Derek, that you've seen a lot of open you know, institutional investors, retail investors in particular, coming into the space. Is that having a material impact? What's that doing to the market? Yeah, I think it's, listen, we, we believe that global markets and open markets and well-regulated markets is the best possible thing for global prices, right? You need to have a, a market where you've got free-flowing information, free-flowing risk, and you've got the right participants between your natural longs, your natural shards, your liquidity providers, your commercial customers. The reason I mentioned at the top of the uh, the conversation that the biggest growth participants in our market are the commercial participants, and I'd put Saad and Traffic Gear and all the commercial traders into that bucket along all the big EMP guys, but I put the miners in there. I put the Kafkos of this world in there, the Cargills of this world in there. You'd expect that they would be participating in record levels across all asset classes they are. Who's coming along for the ride of the financial players and are looking for a return? We're back into policy that Jeff was talking about. If you're going to put the world awash in zero interest rate, you know, free dollars and free sterling, free euros and free yen, that money's got to chase yield someplace. So we're seeing more financial players participate in the upside movements. And I think they're following the fundamentals right now. And what's fascinating is we're seeing record levels of now retail participation. 
what you call gamification of markets, whether it's the AMC GameStop crowd, we're seeing record levels of retail participation looking for just price action. So we, we, we're seeing record levels of non-US participation, retail, commercial, and user participation. We think that's all reflective of a good, strong, healthy market. But the dynamics are back to what Jeff mentioned. This is a price up environment, simple supply and demand. We've got too much demand for too limited supply and no real short-term solutions for that. So now the question is, how long, how high? And you know, are there going to be mitigants that can appear in the short term that might degrade some of these? What we're interested in, I think the call has already proved that, that this is happening without the participation from China. So if you can imagine, once you start seeing uptick in China, once you get the property woes and the shadow banking situation solved in China, imagine what that is going to put into that. So I think that feeds into the duration conversation. I wish I had a crystal ball. I don't. But you know, we're in the business of providing risk management tools for customers. So the more disparate opinions they are in length and time and duration, the better off we are. But we see broad participation and global participation to levels we've never seen before. We think that's healthy. And I think it's reflective of folks that understand there is a lot of risk and unknowns in this market. And listen, that's why we all have jobs, you know, taking uh, taking the kinds of business risks that we do. And let's dust out our crystal balls. We've got, uh, I think everyone's in agreement that there are real structural reasons why there is this rise in prices across the commodity suite. There's also short-term acute impacts as well. What could shorten the duration of it. Um, so like, it seems to me that energy policy is key to this, especially if we start to see rapid inflation, households being impacted and public pressure. Can you talk to us about not only what, what you're seeing there, but also what is there actually the capacity to impact prices or are we, are we in too deep? No, look, I think of the commodities that we're talking about, you know, certainly energy, I think, has probably the the most short-term solvers for this, right? I mean, on the gas market, if Russia provides more into the spot market, weather maybe is a bit of a solver. We've seen what China's doing on the coal front, you know, as in ramping up. So that maybe alleviates some of this pressure in that system for, on the energy side. On oil, you know, look, if, if OPEC were to change its mind to bring more barrels back on more quickly, if you were to see Iran return more quickly than I think we, you know, in the market kind of are thinking, if you were to see shale producers start to ramp up supply more quickly, which they're not doing right now. But again, if that changes, so not so much policy, maybe as much as, as some of these things, the, these solvers coming in, you could get a little bit of a short term alleviation, but this doesn't, again, address the, the, the big problems. And in fact, if anything, you know, OPEC bringing on capacity, some of the other things happening really are, are it's a zero sum game, right? Is you're then taking away capacity that you might need in the future when Libya goes off again, or Nigeria goes off or whatever else that may happen that we've normally seen in markets. And beyond that, I think if we're looking at it, we're saying, look, again, it's actually a little bit where if you're saying, well, you know, we want to reduce our oil consumption over the longer term as part of the energy transition, well, fine, but then you need to produce more metals more quickly you know, in, in order to enable that, right? You need to do more of a grid build out. You need to have more charging stations. You need to have more electric vehicles. All that requires a lot more copper, a lot more nickel, a lot more aluminium, right? Cobalt. So all of these things. So, you know, it's a little bit, okay, if you're, if you're taking from here, you have to give over to there. And a little bit, the question we've had is in that transition, you know, if you do try and accelerate too quickly away from oil, you know, do you see prices move up to levels that actually then start to damage your ability to really make that transition on the metals front, in the sense of, of that overall energy transition, there's a set number of funds out there in the world. Are you going to be able to, to make sure that you can, you can both deliver the energy needs for today, as well as invest for what you need in the future? 
which is tricky, I think, when you talk about the metals piece, because a lot of these, whether it's batteries, EVs or whatever, these are long-term infrastructure builds to actually build up that capacity. Alex, what do you think could uh, shorten or change the narrative that we've laid out so far? I think from kind of my experience on the old side, Saad's already mentioned it, we were talking at the start of the year about the, the kind of the bearish risks of Iranian production coming back sooner than uh, sooner than expected. That's been kicked kind of kicked into the long grass. There are moves, there are there are discussions, not so much obviously not directly with the US, but things are moving along on the European side of things. There will be a point when Iran needs to essentially come to the table, I believe, here and bring their production back. So I think whatever happens with Iran, it will end up surprising people just because that's the nature of the business with what they do. They can bring a lot of oil back to market very quickly, whether it's oil in bonded storage in China, whether it's oil sat on vessels at the moment. So they can actually supply a lot there. That could be an initial shock. And the, the other element is, and I think this is where there's some potentially some disagreement in the panel in, in terms of how quickly the US can bring back can bring supply back as well. So kind of one of my former colleagues, uh, Ed uh, Morset City, has a very constructive outlook in terms of US supply. He thinks it's kind of in the realm of a million barrels a day, I believe, next year. That is a risk. I mean, we're seeing a bit of better supply, kind of better than expected, sorry, supply from many of the US producers at the moment. We were discussing the other day around kind of the impact of the back end of the curve and how that's really going to kind of keep production down. But at the same time, with the old prices, it is, even if they're keeping the uh, percentage expenditure the same, that's still more money to spend. So I think those are the two elements kind of from the old side that could could impact us. Kind of. and, and one of the things we haven't touched on yet is, you know, that there's been and this is new in this super cycle, in, in this really cycle of upturning prices generally, there's a whole social and governance piece here, right? So the whole ESG banner on top of, and I say that only specifically to focus on the pressure on who's going to be providing funds for some of this expanded exploration or the underlying facilities growth, because what we're seeing is banks under pressure to defund those projects or to not provide uh, funding resources. And that that is at a point in time when we need to be building that capacity back up or maybe expand and diversifying in sort of the legacy fossil fuels businesses, there's significant social pressure that's turning into real shareholder pressure on public companies like banks to not provide funding for certain activities. What does that mean? There's less dollars to chase that. So you either go to the private funding route or those projects don't get funded. That raises the price for everything else. So this is a uniquely different set of drivers impacting on top. We haven't talked about kind of the social piece of this yet, but that leads directly into impinging on the ability to attract the funding that that would otherwise pile in to the shell guys. Shell guys are not cash rich guys, right? So they have always needed funding. You pull that funding because social pressure is out there that changed the dynamics of the speed with which that Alex was just talking about, the speed with which we could return to where we were before. Shell guys used to be profitable anywhere above 45 or 50 bucks. We're at 85. You think these guys are pumping like mad. Well, a lot of these guys can't get funded. So the social pressure here is creating economic bottlenecks because you can't fund those projects. The same goes for trading in the efficient markets piece as well. If, if trade financing isn't flowing there either. We've just got a couple of minutes left. I guess, Jeff, there's two questions I have. The first is, did this catch everyone by surprise or you know, was this anticipated? Because it, it didn't seem, it seemed quite a far off story two, three years ago. And secondly, how high could it go? Is this going to be exponentially higher than the previous super cycle, given all of these forces pushing up prices? 
Yeah, I, I think we we knew about the supply constraints or what we call the revenge of the old economy, the underinvestment theme. In fact, we were writing about it in 2019. And, and you know, if you, you know, you went to a place like the Sods at Trade Traffic Gear, they're all aware of this. And, you know, I, and so I think within the commodity community, it wasn't that big of a surprise. To the broader macro community, it caught them completely blindsided. And I think it's still... There's a denial of the severity of the situation. I just like to just go back to the simple observation. Actually, go back and look at Boris Johnson's opening remarks to COP26. He makes a reference in there to the steam engine and James Watt in Scotland. 250 years ago, the steam engine was invented, which he calls a doomsday device that's creating, creating all the emissions. We are asking to unwind 250 years of investment into hydrocarbon fuels as this cornerstone of our energy and a lot of the production in the global economy. The cost of doing that is just going to be beyond our wildest dreams. And so when we think about what is the upside potential here, we're repricing carbon right now, whether if it's in coal, gas, or oil, and where this price goes and what the cost of society is going to be into it, I don't think we have a clue. One of the best explanations I've seen is, you know, the new equilibrium of price. Is it the cost of blue hydrogen, which would be $180, $200 a barrel? I don't know. You know, I like to point out, I tell you, my emphasis to our clients, get long, hang on for the ride. We're going to find out where this is. I do want to point out any super cycle is not a continuous upward trend. It's going to be spike after spike after spike. The one thing I'm confident, the highs will be higher, the lows will be higher, and as we continue to do that, the 2000s was just a sequence of spikes. And I think we're going to see the same thing here. I'm not going to get conjecture how high this can go. I'm just going to make the point. We are going to be, we're facing the biggest problems we have ever seen. In fact, I'd say ever in the history of mankind to change 250 years of investment. The cost of doing that is going to be enormous. So final word. I think that's right. I think people, you know, again, this is something we, we have been looking at for a while and people are still, I think, just getting to grips on around the edges of, of the scale and the size of the problem and that there are no easy solvers and no quick solvers and there are no cheap solvers. And I think that this is this really is requiring a refocusing of attention, as Jeff is saying, you know, to really kind of get to grips with it. And just the fact that is that we're, yeah, exactly, is we're in for the ride now. Well, I think that might excite a, a number of the viewers of the panel. I want to thank everyone, all the participants for your comments and insight, and thank all the viewers for joining uh, Commodities Trading 2021. And I believe everyone will be back after the break. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider, and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.